Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Yesterday was the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 when terrorists hijacked airplanes and flew them into the Twin Towers in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And one airplane was diverted uh, to Pennsylvania by the passengers. And so I think we, we should celebrate and admire the heroism of those who helped in this desperate time. But in the aftermath of this disaster, the 20 years between, I believe we have to examine what happened to the church in the United States with the administration of George Bush and culminating in that of Donald Trump. The evangelical church became fused with a conservative right-wing politics and ended with a cult of personality, uh, religious nationalism, which created an ongoing situation through which we're still living. And it's not unlike the cult of the emperor, which the first Christians faced, but now many Christians have been co-opted into the emperor cult. And so the first Christians were considered by the Romans to be atheists because they didn't practice the religions. Christianity was not considered a religion. It wasn't officially accepted as a religion. In fact, it was considered anti-religious. And part of the point of the New Testament is to describe how to negotiate the emperor cult, the cults of idolatry, which were very often intermixed with the Roman emperor cult, part of the national religion. And so this is why Paul writes, look at 1 Corinthians. You can tell I've been on vacation. Oh, it's 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. And so Paul says that an idol is nothing. There are many religions, but there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. And we can't participate in the false religions or in the worship of the false gods. He's saying we owe our allegiance to Jesus and the Father of Christ. And so the church has faced this situation throughout much of its history of being co-opted or being challenged by the religions. Maybe most recently in Germany with the rise of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism, it was into this situation that the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of a religionless Christianity. That is, that like with the first church, we can't participate in what people think is religion. 
because that's not Christianity. Religion had been behind the co-opting of the church by Nazism. And by this, he meant that the religious forms of the church were part of the sickness, precisely those that disqualified it from being Christian, that is, being religious in this bad sense. And so the priests, those in power, those in institutions depended on the state, they were the first to cave in and crave recognition by Hitler. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church was one of the earliest churches to sign a pact with Hitler. Now Bonhoeffer had spent time in the United States. He came over, went to Union Theological Seminary and he attended church here for several years. And he was pretty well aware of the scene in the United States. And he was not happy here either. He said that for the most part, with the exception of the black church, he attended the Obsidian Baptist Church in Harlem. And he said, apart from that church, he said, I never heard the gospel preached in the United States. And he met his professors and friends at Union Theological Seminary and other churches that he attended. And so Bonhoeffer believes Western civilization to be on the threshold of what he calls a completely religionless age. He says that Christians must respond, they must adapt. The church, Protestant and Catholic, it had failed. And of course I think it's failing now. It had in fact made the Hitler cult possible. And Bonhoeffer would die a martyr in his resistance to Adolf Hitler. He's involved in the plots to kill Hitler. And it produces a form of thinking uh, a theology that I think we can look at and be benefited by. Two days after Hitler came to power in 1933, Bonhoeffer gave a radio talk on leadership. And by, this was cut off in the middle of the talk. But he warned that Germans are buying into a dangerous cult. And he labeled the strutting, newly elected chancellor a Verfuhrer a misleader. And from then on, in contrast to many in the church, he saw grounds for nothing but dissent, complaint, and eventually conspiracy against the religion of the state or the irreligion. And his most celebrated books, maybe The Cost of Discipleship and the book Ethics that's published after he dies. But Bonhoeffer was party to planning various attempts then on Hitler's life. He was arrested and in prison and later charged and on April 9th, 1945 he was marched naked out to Gallows in the Sweet Springs in the words of one account he was hung. But he raises the question what does it mean to be a disciple? You know his Lutheran training had stressed grace alone and not obedience and he realized oh this isn't enough in this situation and Bonhoeffer shifted emphasis we need to actually follow Jesus and he made the famous distinction between cheap grace and costly grace cheap grace is nominal Christianity Christianity sold on the market in his description thrown away at cut prices Costly grace is obedient discipleship. And he understood this particularly in regard to the Sermon on the Mount. 
we have to be obedient to what Jesus said. So ultimately, due to the situation in Germany, but also the situation that he saw in the world, he thought Christianity could only survive if it became religionless, if it extracted itself from religion as we know it. He says there's no human way to God, but only God's way to us. All religion for Bonhoeffer is essentially hubris. It's pride, a vain reaching out to God from below. And Bonhoeffer finds in Matthew 8, 17, it says he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. And he says the crucial distinction is here between Christianity and religion. As Matthew describes it, Christ helps us by virtue of his weakness and suffering. Not in power, but in identifying with the powerless. Christ taking up of the diseases and sorrows and weaknesses. This marks out who he was and it should mark out who we are. Where religion presumes to speak from a place of power, Christ speaks from a religionless place of suffering and weakness. And Bonhoeffer presumes to find this religionous understanding in a secular age. That is, he sees secularism as a positive development. In the Old and New Testament, particularly in the theology of Paul, Bonhoeffer then develops what he calls this religionless understanding. And he pictures the emergence of a new kind of irreligious sensibility. Maybe a departure from the various forms of, obviously in his immediate context, because in his immediate context, the Catholics and the Lutherans, they were Nazis. Can you be a Christian Nazi? He didn't think so. But he saw this as a worldwide problem. And he says we need to make a departure then from religion itself. Religion makes impossible a true sharing in God's suffering in Christ. It makes impossible a true experience of God. And so as early as 1934, he was convinced, he says, that in the West, Christianity is approaching its end. And his first resource for speaking about this religionless understanding, he turns to the Old Testament. By this time, by the way, he's in prison. And he reads the Old Testament through, twice through, and he notices something. The Israelites never uttered the name of God. He realized that there is no discussion of deliverance from out of the world, saving of souls, but the focus is on the establishment of God's kingdom, God's righteousness on earth. And then he turns to Paul and he finds in Paul's depiction, you know, Paul talks about passage beyond circumcision, beyond the markers of Judaism. And he finds the modern day equivalent of a passage beyond religion, the markers of religion. Religion is no more a condition for salvation, he says, than circumcision. Freedom from circumcision, he concludes, is freedom from religion. And a right understanding of Paul would entail a moving beyond the delimiting factors of religion. What he's saying is to follow Jesus is something very different than being religious. Religion, he explains, means to speak metaphysically, individualistically. Religion is concerned with ontology, the power of God, you know, transcendence, the saving of souls. 
And Bonhoeffer claims this is not relative to the biblical message or to the person of today. He characterizes religion as man's attempt to find God. And he says revelation from God in Christ is exactly the opposite. It's God's attempt to speak to man. The human word is pitted against the divine word. And so his point is that we need to read the New Testament in this new background. He says, aren't righteousness and the kingdom of God on earth the focus of everything? And isn't this true, he says, even of Romans? And he turns to Romans in Romans 3.24. It's not an individualistic doctrine of salvation, but the culmination of the view that God is righteous in establishing his righteousness. Look at Romans 3.21. But now apart from the law, apart from religion, apart from Judaism, apart from the priests, apart from the institutions of religion, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law, to which religion, and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Bonhoeffer's point is redemption through Christ stands over and against their understanding of religion. It's through Christ alone and not the trappings of religion, not the law, not the prophets, not the temple, not the priests. It's through Christ alone that we're saved. And this is why Bonhoeffer sees the rise of secularism and even atheism as a kind of aid to Christianity. Because we have to be rid of religion before we can see Christ. Secularism and atheism may afford, he thinks, a correct reading of the Bible. These are certainly better than Nazism, which is a fusion of religion with nationalism. It's better than emperor worship. It's better than the cult of personality. And he also, he, Bonhoeffer has an interesting point. He said, you know, I'm really not afraid of the evil men. I'm really afraid of stupid people. They're the ones who are truly dangerous. And with the rise of secularism, Christianity, he believes, can take its proper place. Not at the boundaries of society, you know, not where we can just happen to make room for Christ, but in the center of human concerns. And he calls this the world come of age. That is that we're maturing. We've come to a true recognition of our situation before God. He says this was always where Christ pointed. God would have us know, he says, that we must live as people who manage our lives without him. The God who is with us is the God who forsakes us. Mark 15, 34. That is, he brings us to maturity. He expects us to do some things on our own. God wants us to live in the world without the continual crutch or hypothesis of God. And this is why God let himself 
be pushed out of the world on the cross so that we would stand before him in full authenticity as mature people. He is weak and powerless in the world and that is the precisely the way, the only way, he says, in which he is with us and helps us. He is not with us as a stopgap, you know, as the big other, as the God of the gaps. He's not with us in a kind of oppressive strength. Matthew 8.17 makes it quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. It is not religiosity Christ calls for, but shared suffering. It is not the religious act that makes the Christian, but participation in the sufferings of God. This is true conversion. Not in the first place thinking about one's own needs, problems, sins, and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up into the way of Jesus Christ, into the messianic event. And he sees this as fulfilling Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root, out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is no system of religious doctrine, abstract doctrine, you know, of comprehending God in his omnipotence. That would just be a, an extension of religion. Genuine experience of God begins with an encounter with Jesus Christ. He was not stately. He has no majesty. Nothing that would attract us to him. He is a man of sorrows. He was despised. And the encounter with the one who is there only for others transforms the world and every aspect of belief because this is a true encounter with God. And so Jesus is the man for others and he turns to us that we too would turn to the neighbor to find there the manifestation, the true encounter with God, not God in his remoteness, his transcendence, the terrifying form of God. But our relationship to God is not a relationship of religion to the highest and most powerful, you know, the highest being imaginable. That is not authentic transcendence. Our relationship to God is a new life in existence for others through participation in the being of Jesus. He says we shouldn't let our church do our believing for us by simply identifying with the church. He says the church is the church only when it exists for others. Just as a Christian is only a true follower of Christ when he exists for others. So too the church. And so to make a start, he says, the church should give away all the property. The clergy must live solely on free will offerings or possibly engage in secular calling. 
The church and its people, he says, must share in the problems of ordinary human life, not dominating but helping and serving. He describes it showing and witnessing through example. And here then is the way that belief works. Not through abstract doctrine, but in deed and power. He says this is how we believe. In such a way that we stake our lives on it. This is the God who bids us come and die. And it's only disclosed in this narrow way. And this marks the difference between the God of religion and the God of Christianity. As man in his distress, he imagines a God who can fill in the gaps. While Christianity directs us to a God of suffering love. As long as humankind only experiences God as a security blanket, he cannot know the God of the Bible. The false conception of God is exposed in man recognizing his own strength. We can do some things for ourselves. He said it is not as with the beyond that we're concerned, but with the world as created and preserved, subjected to laws, reconciled and restored. And so he's calling for a complete reconception of the Bible, a holistic reenchantment of Christianity in which what is above the world is made imminent. The very intent of creation, incarnation, crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this has an immediate impact now. Now there is an unfolding of the gospel. Now there is a universal bearing fruit of the gospel. And he sees this then in the possibility of what he calls this religionless Christianity. Now he describes the origin of this, interestingly, in the 13th century with the rise of human autonomy, the development of science, you know, the social and political developments, art, religion, medicine. He says there is a completion in which man has learnt to deal with himself without recourse to the working hypothesis called God. As in the scientific field, so in human affairs generally, he says God is being pushed more and more out of life, losing more and more ground. And this God confined to religion though, he says needs to be pushed out, so as to arrive at a more mature understanding of God at work in the world. Religion limits the role of God to a stopgap, to a resource, when human knowledge has come to an end, or when human resources fail, so that the God of religion is always a God that just sort of mechanically fills in the gaps, that we bring onto the scene to solve our apparently insoluble problems. In human failure, we bring in God. So that there's always exploiting human weakness or human boundaries. But he says the world come of age is one in which human limitations are narrowed. So that a place for God is simultaneously restricted. That is as we fill in the gaps there is no room for the God of the gaps. There seems to be no end Bonhoeffer says. And here I think he's a little too confident in human progress. But he says there's no end to human self-sufficiency. 
But for Bonhoeffer, this is not bad news for Christianity because it affords a severing of Christianity from religion. And so rather than continually trying to preserve space for God and attempting, you know, through apologetics, through theology, through metaphysics, to keep humankind in its adolescence, he says, the world come of age calls for a mature faith. The attack by Christian apologetic on the adulthood of the world, he says, I consider to be pointless. It's ignoble. It's unchristian. It's pointless because we cannot return to a previous age. We can't go back to the first century. We can't go back to the Middle Ages. There is an impossibility of creating dependence where we've created independence. He says it's ignoble because it amounts to attempt to exploit human weakness, which secular man knows nothing about. He maintains it's unchristian because it confuses Christ with one particular stage in man's religiousness, with a kind of human law. And so rather than exploit a non-existent weakness or an attempt to smuggle God into a secret place, in a world come of age, humankind needs to be confronted at its place of strength. Bonhoeffer explains, I should like to speak of God not at the boundaries, but at the center, not in weaknesses, but in strength, and therefore not in death and guilt, but in man's life and goodness. Rather than setting God at the boundaries, in the gaps, utilizing him for a kind of stopgap for human weakness, the Bible can be reconceived with God at the center of the world. And so there will always be human delimitations, human finitude. But he says it's better to be silent about these things and leave the insoluble unsolved and not use God for that purpose. To live with God at the center is to give up any attempt to make something of oneself. Whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a churchman, a so-called priestly type, a righteous man or an unrighteous man, to live in this world with God will mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures experiences and perplexities. Maybe a simple way of saying it, we need to be present in the world. We need to be present in life's duties and problems and purposes. Only in this way can we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own suffering or simply our own sufferings, but those of the God in the world watching with Christ in Gethsemane. Will you watch with me one hour? Here is true conversion, true metanoia, a conversion from out of religion in which one becomes a mature Christian. He says, how can success make us arrogant or failure lead us astray when we share in God's suffering through a life of this kind? He's about to be executed. And this becomes clear to him. And so these are some of the last words he writes about religionless Christianity. But he sees this new religionless faith will disempower former ways of speaking. 
He thinks there will be a new way, a new vocabulary, a new focus on prayer, a new focus on human action. His best friend is Bethke, and Bethke asked Bonhoeffer to baptize Bethke's son. He's in prison. He can't come and baptize him. And so instead, he writes a sermon for the occasion. And he lays this out, and he says that all Christian thinking, speaking, and organizing must be born anew. He says, by the time, and he's speaking to Bethke's son, by the time you've grown up, the church's form will have changed greatly. We are not yet out of the melting pot, and any attempt to help the church prematurely to a new expansion of its organization will merely delay its conversion and purification. Bonhoeffer seems to be describing the emergence of something new, a new Christianity. I believe we're in that place. The need for that arises still. It is not for us to prophesy the day, he says, although the day will come when men will once more be called to utter the word of God, that the world will be changed and renewed by it. I don't think he claims to have worked out the details of this reordered world, this reordered church, this reordered humanity. But he sees that there needs to be and will be a deep grammatical shift. It will be a new language, maybe non-religious, he says, but liberating and redeeming as Jesus' language was. It will shock people and yet overcome them by its power. It will be the language of a new righteousness and truth, proclaiming God's peace with men and the coming of his kingdom. He sees this as an inaugurated eschatology. He sees this new way in the language of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 33, 9, they shall fear and tremble. Why? Because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. That is, we can see God in the strength, the progress, the science, the medicine. Here too, God is at work. He concludes and concedes. Maybe until then, the Christian cause will be a silent and hidden affair. But there will be those who pray and do right and wait for God's own time. And then his prayer for young Dietrich, and the boy, of course, had been named after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bethke. His prayer for him is that, maybe this is his prayer for the church and for all Christians. May you be one of them, and may it be said of you one day, the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter till full day. And so he speaks in his description of this religious Christianity of something new. Something of which he only has a rough conception. It involves a new experience of God, a new type of humanity, and a new form for the church universal. I believe that his vision is one that we must capture, that we must build upon, and that we too must resist a Christianity that has given itself over to evil has given itself self over to religion, has given itself over to the cult of personality. We may have to exist in a silent, hidden, and small way in our own religionless form of the faith.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.